0: N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash W-T-F. Lock the gate! <laughs> All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck faces? What's happening? Yeah, I threw a new one in there. Someone just sent it to me. I'm sure I've had it on the list before. What the fuck faces? Who wants to be that? Who? Are, did I just speak to someone out there? Did someone just think I'm a fuck face? But now it, I threw one in there. So how's it going? You all right? I'm Mark Marin. This is my show, WTF. It's a podcast. You've got it plugged into your head. How's it going in there? Got a good show today. Gus Van Zant is here. Uh, He's on the show. He's not here right now as I speak to you, but he's on the show. How good is watermelon? That's just a non sequitur. But uh, in the summertime, man, I've been eating so much fucking watermelon. I think it's good. I hope it's uh, not uh, making me pre-diabetic, but uh, it's part of this dumb diet I'm on, kind of. You know when they say you can eat things that uh, have any amount of sugar in a totally non-sugar situation? You eat a lot. I'm going through a couple melons a week. It's a bad habit. I got a watermelon habit. I got a melon on my back. Oh, man. I, get, I can't wait for summer to be over so I can stop just carrying around watermelons. It's its bad, man, when you get itchy and you get kind of squirrely and you got to run out to Whole Foods or Vons or Ralph's or wherever the fuck you can get a melon. Oh, jeez. But it's good. Put a little salt on it. Awesome. That's it. It's just that's my uh, summertime tip. Salt your melon. All right? That's... uh. How's that? Is that all right? <laughs> Before I forget... Let me tell you what's happening. I'm going to be at the Ice House this week, the 19th, 20th, and 21st, doing shows, working on that hour. I'm going to be at Wise Guys in Salt Lake City on the 3rd and 4th of August. I'll be in Chicago. I think that show sold out at the Thalia Theater, I believe is where I'm playing. August 30th through September 1st, I'll be in Bloomington at the Comedy Attic, and September 6th through 8th, I'll be in Minneapolis at Acme, and September 21 and 22, I'll be at Denver at the Comedy Works, doing some club work. I'll, I'll provide links for that on my site. That's what's happening. I don't think I've talked to you guys since uh, Glow got nominated for all of these Emmy Awards. They got nominated for a bunch of Emmy Awards. No, I did not get one. And no, I did not get robbed. And no, I did not. It's like the, the, the sort of imposed competition thing is a little is a it's a little disturbing in some ways. You know, I'm glad that uh, that a lot of you thought that I should have got one, but the fact is it's a, it's all gravy for me, folks. Everything is Everything is going fine. I'm not. I'm not a big award-winning guy for whatever reason. You know, there were times towards the beginning, the first couple years of this podcast, where I really was upset that we didn't get a Peabody, and I think it was because the word "fuck" is in the title of the show, or there was some fuck at the Peabodys who didn't want to, you know, give us the fucking satisfaction of getting one of those things. And what does it really mean in the long run? The fact of the matter is that people enjoy what we're putting out there. They enjoy what I'm putting out there. I'm, I'm making a, an honest living out of it, and, and I'm thrilled. The show got nominated for a Best Comedy Series, Production Design for Narrative Program. Uh, that was also nominated, Casting for a Comedy Series. Uh, Jen Houston and her crew, uh, uh, that's great, Cinematography, for a single camera series nomination, great. Directing for a comedy series, great. Hairstyling for a single camera series, nice. Congratulations, ladies. Uh, an outstanding main title sequence, that is amazing. It's all amazing. Makeup for a single camera series, awesome. Stunt coordination for a comedy series, a variety program, awesome. And then, and then, Betty Gilpin, fucking Betty Gilpin. Gets nominated for Best Supporting. That is spectacular. Betty is such a force, man. I didn't know Betty at all before we started doing it, but she is a complete sort of uh, questing oddball. She's a real risk taker with what she does. No matter what she does in terms of how she's approaching a character, she's going to push it, and it's something to watch. I love working with all these people. I love working with those women. And again, this imposed competition thing is annoying. Look, I know we're, we're all competitive. I, th- I think that by nature, people are competitive. Maybe I'd, I, you, you kind of have to be to survive. Well, let's assume that, uh, you know, your genetics have gotten you here. So there was some natural competition along the way in the last couple of thousand years. And remind me to tell you about genetics because I got my genetic uh, breakdown back. And boy, what a surprise. Oh, yeah. You guys are going to be really surprised. I waited weeks for this. And I was supposed to do that show where they do the the sort of like this is your life genetic show. And they never got back to me. And now I know why. Now I know why. My genes have persisted. But they they stop with me. In, In my particular line, they stop with me. I have no children. My brother has kids, uh, but they stopped with him too because his kids are are all adopted. But that, you know, nothing, that's great. You know, kids are kids. But uh, but you know, I, I don't know if it was if it was part of our innate desire to not propel the uh, the sort of legacy of what we come from. Obviously, it's not malignant. It's not horrible. It's a little needy, a bit uh, a bit erratic, somewhat uh, uh, self involved, and and maybe uh, at times depressive and anxious. But look. I got my 23 uh, me back, and I was excited about it. I went, I went all in, you know, like, give me the whole breakdown. Tell me what I'm going to get. Tell me, you know, what I'm ha- destined to die of, the whole business. And uh, drum roll, please, because uh, my ancestry reports, my ancestry composition is Jew. It just, I don't know if, it's, it, if if that's unique to me, but it just says Jew, Basically, it says 99.5% Ashkenazi Jewish. So n- I guess no surprises, no Viking. I was hoping for a little bit of Viking. I was hoping for a little bit of something. There's a 0.4% of broadly European. But it all looks right around that Russian, Poland, dad whole... The green spot on the big global map is a, in the area that I kind of knew. But I was really hoping that somewhere back there, my great-great-great-great-grandmother may have consensually fucked a Viking so i get a little of that. But, uh, but no, no, uh, that, that's not there. But now I know, now I know. I'm a full-on Jew with about 4% of Broadway European that is also probably Jewish. So there you go. Now we all know. Hey, uh, a couple of things. Just uh, in, in the climate we live in, uh, anytime you're thinking they can't, they can. Anytime you're thinking they wouldn't, they would. Every time you think they won't, they will. And there doesn't seem to be anything holding them back. So I'm, I'm going at this early. I'll, I'll bring it up occasionally. Uh, to your friends who are detached from the process, who feel that they don't have a place in the political world or that may not have an effect on their lives, please start planting the seeds for them to vote uh, in November and to uh, spread the word. They can, they will, they do. Everything you imagine. It's so profoundly amazing how how quickly and easily uh, uh, people in this country and people in power shamelessly slip into complete moral depravity and uh, moral bankruptness. It's a human thing. It's nothing unique. Everybody's got that slippery slope. It's just a, you know. All he needs is an opportunity, and uh, you could find yourself in some uh, deep shit. Well, a lot of people have found that opportunity in power, and we're all in some deep shit because of complete shameless personal and moral corruption. It's uh, it's really quite astounding. They will, they can, they do. Dig it. Oh, also another thing. I get uh, emails occasionally. You know, when I have a big actor in here. Specifically recently, maybe Josh Brolin and Paul Rudd, and I seem uh, slightly condescending to superhero movies, and you think that's rude. I I'm, I, I want to tell you this, you know, honestly and from my heart. I will continue doing it. I will continue to condescend to grownups who defend almost, you know, maniacally. Uh, The integrity and need and greatness of superhero movies look look, I'm all for entertainment. I'm glad you enjoy it. I don't go. I'm not even saying that I wouldn't enjoy it. What I'm saying is the consolidation and uh, leveling of the culture's taste uh, to uh, infantile intent and product is something that's been coming for a long time. It's great for movie companies. They, they can just, you know, guaranteed to make millions on franchises that were fundamentally designed for children. So the fact that you're a grown ass fucking person and you've you know, kind of justified it in your periphery and your fucking worldview that these are great and you just can't get enough of them. Great. That's good for you. But the truth of the matter is it pushes away and it pushes aside and, you know, real dialogue and real human stories that now you got to go to Siberia. I got to go to the Lamley to see a, a movie that, you know, is grown up themed and is actually provocative and proactive in terms of making you think and making you move forward with your life and seeing things differently. Now I have to go. I got to go find those. I got to I got to watch those in my living room because the audience isn't big enough to to justify the release of uh, of these films that you know were once uh, known as grown-up movies thrillers like Michael Clayton's a good example but uh you can keep coming at me about my tone around Marvel movies or Uh, any of the superhero movies I'm going to remain condescending as a grown person who questions them and usually when I'm talking to an actor it's it's uh, it's slightly condescending but it's really ribbing I'm just busting balls and every time I've done it they knew exactly what I was doing and they have it within them too but money is money entertainment is entertainment but uh, it was not supposed to be that every movie has to be like a fucking amusement park ride. It wasn't supposed to be that, you know, oh, why are they talking? What am I listening to? How come someone's not flying? Where's the blowing up? Wait, And, you know, maybe I sound like an old man, but you're a grown person. You know, just lighten up. I can have my point of view. And I'll remain condescending because I feel like that's the place to be on this one. And uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for your feelings and you're mad that I don't like the flying man. I'm sorry. I'm, you want some ice cream? You want some ice cream? Or do you want a beer? You're old enough to have beer. You're old enough to have had too much beer. Don't cry because I made fun of the caped guy. I saw that Tripwitz movie, that documentary. That was kind of mind bending. Very provocative. Really kind of amazing, actually. I've been seeing a lot of movies. I saw David Diggs's movie, uh, Blind Spotting. I'm gonna talk to him on Thursday. And that was uh, that was uh, a great sort of real personal heartfelt Oakland movie that had some interesting sort of emotional and cultural twists in it from a very kind of grounded and human place. It was great to see. I'll talk to him about that on Thursday. I talked today to Gus Van Zandt about his movie. Don't worry. He won't get far on foot, which again is a very human story. It deals with uh, recovery. It deals with uh, grief. It deals with um, tragedy. There's some beautiful stuff in this movie and Joaquin Phoenix is uh, pretty Pretty fucking amazing, man. And, you know, it's weird that, that, you know, as I talk to actors and I work with actors, you can see how they, you know, where they come from with their acting. You know, it's very, it's, it's a very interesting part of my life to, to kind of see how stories are told and how people construct characters and do things. It's, uh, I don't know, I'm enjoying it as the world burns, if you don't mind. So obviously Gus Van Zandt has done a lot of films. Uh, Goodwill Hunting, Elephant, uh, To Die For, uh, Drugstore Cowboy. He remade Psycho. I mean, there's a lot of films this man has done, a lot of different types of movies, and a lot of which I've seen and and enjoyed and found to be very provocative. Some of his smaller movies, uh, Elephant, and uh, what was that one? Last Days, I think it was called. Very, um, very poetic and very challenging, and 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 great. And it was sort of like uh, I was a little nervous to talk to him, but I like talking to directors, especially ones that kind of uh, do a lot of different things that take chances, that take risks. There's nothing better than talking to uh, creative people who are willing to take risks, willing to fail, you know, willing to keep pushing to find a truth that, in a way, that hasn't been explored yet. So this was a this was a, an honor for me, and this is me and Gus Van Sant, and uh, the movie I mentioned. Uh, don't worry, he won't get far on foot. Is now playing. So, this is me and. Yes. How long you played for?
1: A uh, long time, like 30 years.
0: Right? Yeah. Well, that's what I did too. Like you just play by yourself. Yeah. You play along with records and stuff?
1: Yeah, I play along with all kinds of records. Yeah, and, like what? In my history. I used to play with Charlie Christian. Oh, you, are you? so you can really do it? Yeah, I can do that. Really? And. It's mimicking, you know, cuz I don't know what I'm doing. I can't say, oh that's an A, that's right. a C, that's an E. And even now I'm like, I should have learned this kind of thing, you know, like Well, I, yeah, I well, you can't though. I don't I don't read music, but you you can identify chords. Yeah, I can right. do chords. Like the major chords. Sure. I can't go into like minor sevenths everywhere on the f- right. fretboard, but I can learn them, you know.
0: But you can you can sort of noodle around with Charlie Christian. Mhm. That's pretty yeah. good. Like you do T-Bone Walker, too.
1: I can I can probably do anybody or like play along with the record yeah, sure. where they're playing. Right, I can kind of like so the people that I've emulated are like Jimi Hendrix. Eric Clapton,
0: right? Yeah, I mean, you know, definitely. Yeah, they're I, easy. I
1: mean, Hendrix is easy if you got a Strat. Yeah, you know, it's like and yeah, if, if you just get into a thing, you can
0: you can kind of sound like him, him, sort of.
1: Sure, yeah. And I, was, I don't even know the right chords. If you learn the Hendrix chords, then you can really sound like him.
0: No, yeah, I mean, I that's I used to do that all the time. I had a Strat out in my old place, and uh, yeah, you, it's the tone. It sounds like him. So you're like a real player, then you've you've been like I mm-hmm. I didn't play with people for years. It's sort of a a meditative thing.
1: Feels good, right? I'm just, I'm just sort of daydreaming, and yeah, yeah, on the couch. I've always got, yeah, everywhere. I've always got it there. So, how long have you lived in Los Feliz? I think officially for a year. Like I sold my last place in Oregon, and I live here and and Palm Springs. Oh, okay. So you did. well, that's nice. So I'm not stuck here, I right? Can, I can go. You can somewhere. go to a hotter place when it gets hot here in LA. <laughs> yeah. Although even yeah. 120 in Palm Springs isn't like the weather we're having here at 94. Here is hotter. what do you
0: what do you make of that? Why is that? You think because of the, the air? humidity? I think. And the, oh yeah, humidity? so there's just
1: no humidity over there. So you can kind of like dry.
0: Yeah, and you walk outside, and he feels good until you realize you have no liquid in your body. <laughs> exactly, but you, it have to up on you. you have to drink. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so do you miss? I mean, it's a big shift, but but Portland's very specific.
1: Do you miss that? Um, well, I'd been there for so long that yeah. I think at this point I don't miss it. I probably would not miss it or will miss it, like in a few years. Yeah, I'll just go. Like I should really just get back there.
0: How but long did you live there? We did you grow up? Moved, you grew up there, though,
1: right? I, mo- I moved there in, when I was seventeen in 1970. Yeah, or 16, and uh, went to two years of high school, and then I um, went to college in Rhode Island, and then moved back to at, at RISD. RISD, yeah, you did. Yeah. In what years? Where's that? Like in the 70- 75 to uh, no, I mean 71 to 75. Who was there? Who do we know? The famous talking heads the tag, were the there. The heads were there? Yeah. The, um I mean Charlie Rocket was there. Do you remember him? He was on stage. I do. I he killed himself, didn't he? he? Was, yes, he did. Uh-huh. Um, he uh he was there. He was one of my big influences actually. Really? As, a, as just a as a person. He I was, said
0: that so glibly. He killed himself, right? Like that's in point <laughs> of reference. It, it's sad, but I know. How I was know. he an uh,
1: influence? He and um a film one of the film students I was in the film department. Yeah. Were, um they would go out and do this thing they, that Charlie was already doing called Meet the Stars. Charlie would go out on his own, dressed yeah. up, to just meet Alice Cooper, see if he could get backstage. It yeah. was really like, can we get backstage without any credentials? Were they shooting it? And and then with Scott uh, Sorensen, he started shooting it. for This was like for class projects, right. I think. And, which they did later on Saturday Night Live a little bit um and it just was i saw it in a class and thought it was super funny and joined them a couple times and oh yeah screwed up the sound um are you the sound guy i was the sound guy yeah and um it was just they were just he was just also a singer lead singer of the motels Charlie rock it was yeah not the la version the punk rock band but the the Providence, Rhode Island motels.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. The fabulous, there were
1: two fabulous motels. There, there was two. two yeah. Oh,
0: now I know that. That's and great.
1: The fabulous motels in in Providence, I think, is kind of forgotten, lesser known. But it was in Providence. It was like the biggest thing we had.
0: What kind know. of are we, what kind of music was it? It was art rock oh, for right. sure. sure. It was
1: um, a band that would come out um, playing as one band called like Iron Grandmother, or something yeah. like right. that. Um, right. Right funny it was comedy rock really. yeah yeah and like the tubes yeah sure and would play as iron grandmother for like six or seven songs Then they would <laughs> yeah. go backstage and, and change into the motels or uh, electric driveway oh, right. or some other so they all went to risdy and they all were risdy students oh yeah. yeah and they started really from martin Mull. oh like, really Mull had a band called soup and that evolved into he was at risdy as well he was at risdy he was a painter yes so he's com- a painter
0: again And he's a painter again, so
1: comedy rock. Right. In his case, jazz. Comedy jazz. And I saw him play at the Roxy. Um, But he sort of, in the mid 60s, had a band, and then Tim Duffy took over, and there was a band called Snake and the Snatch. Uh And that sort of, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And, you know, uh, engendered like a few other bands and eventually the the motels.
0: Wow. Good, a real legacy.
1: Yeah. That's I mean, wild, I've studied, man. I've studied it. You have, <laughs> yeah. I and, tried to, and the but the heads and were, the Talking Heads were like David Byrne would do um, some things along with the band. I think performance pieces in between sets and things. So he was, so he was sort of in there. Sometimes. Yeah. So you were there in the seventies, um, early seventies to mid seventies.
0: So, like at that time, post 60s, I mean, that's when all that performance art, everything was really blowing up
1: at that yeah. time. Yeah, it was the 60s were kind of hanging over into the 70s. Yeah. And so, everyone that was the guy, the older students like Charlie uh, Clavery or Charlie Rocket um, or even Martin Malt, they were kind of the senior um, frontiersmen that had yeah. invented certain things and continued on. And we were newbies and sort of learning from them, like, oh, you don't have to do architecture. You can do rock music or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or pottery want, or, or whatever you, know, you want. Something different than what you already do. And what did you start out doing? I was um I think everyone a lot of people were painters. Yeah. Um I know the talking has um we're all painters. Um and I was a painter and but I majored in film. You did. Film do you still paint? And I still paint. Yes. You do? Yeah. You've got and you do you show
0: your paintings and everything?
1: Sometimes when I'm lucky I can I show my paintings. Figurative, abstract? What do you A little bit uh figurative and a little bit abstract. Uh-huh. But
0: you like doing it, not unlike guitar. It's something that you enjoy doing but yeah. you don't feel pressured exactly, to do. Exactly. It's it's yours. Exactly. Well you do that with film too, but I mean but like with those things, it's like you don't have to tell anybody, you don't have to do it for anybody. Right. It's nice. Exactly. That's yeah, nice. So out of RISD because it seems to me that the 70s, like after the 60s, like once the hippie got drained out of the 70s and it just became, you know, drugs and sex and uh, it had a little more edge to it, uh, that seemed to be sort of the the Petri dish of where you started to develop your, your sensibility.
1: Yeah, I think I was influenced, I think, by all the things that happened in the 60s were kind of culminating in 71 is when I ended up there. Um, in making... Art in this case, because we were in art school. Um, how much it, of it was a reaction to Vietnam? As much as you know, as much as you were involved in Vietnam already, yeah. you know, I think everyone was. But um, it was partly that, or a reaction to the reactions to Vietnam, or <laughs> some people had been in Vietnam. I and mean, one of my classmates yeah. had had a nervous breakdown in a submarine in in oh in really the, in the Pacific yeah um, who was a painter. Um, so there were people with you that were they had had been in combat, and, wow, uh, but um I mean, just the whole st- thing that was happening in the sixties, whatever you could call it was was still happening in the seventies, and by mid seventies I think it was sort of changing so so you finish RISD, you go all four, I went all four years i I tried to leave after my first year, and then i um <clears throat> was talked back into it by my parents, of course, and um Oh, yeah. They were supportive, though. That's a good sign. They were supportive. And um, and then I uh, graduated in 75 and came via um, Europe. I went to Europe for a little while and then uh, came to L.A.
0: What did you do? Uh, where, you, what were you doing in Europe, just hanging around?
1: I went on a student um, group, a uh, film group, and uh-huh. we were visiting in Rome. We were visiting um, filmmakers. Who'd you talk so to? So we talked to Fellini. We talked really? to yes. How we, many
0: people were with you?
1: There were about eight. Wow! Eight. And then there were about sixteen in total. But that particular visit was about eight students. Huh. We went to the set of Casanova. We went to the set of uh, Seven Beauties by Lena Vertmuller. Oh my god! We went to uh, talk to Pasolini. Really? In his um, in his house, but it was just a couple months before he died. Tinto Brass was Uh a filmmaker. He was making Salon Kitty, which was sort of a semi-porno entertainment. Yeah, Um, did it have an impact on you? Do you? I mean, when you, (laughs) I. Um, he, I think it was just amazing. I mean, we were amazed. Was it the first that. time you were on sets? Yes, uh, exactly. So you're on Fellini's set. Fellini's set.
0: Did did, did anything uh, impact you about how he worked or anything? I mean, what did he,
1: well, it was night and it was late at night. I think yeah. we ended up getting there about 11 because they were shooting all night uh-huh. and we, they shot until say two o'clock and um, when we got there, there was a, a cauldron it was at a farmhouse. Yeah. Um so the fire the the fire was lighting up the set and there was some extra lights sort yeah. of like flashing. And in the middle of there was a group of, of twenty five people in folding uh, directors' chairs. Yeah. In a square. Like yeah. Five by five. In the middle of them was the tallest woman in the world who was in the film. Right. In costume. She was in an extra large chair. So it was kind of this weird graphic of yeah. twenty five people. And we were told like in whispers that Fellini and Donald Sutherland weren't getting along and uh-huh. that like they're discussing the scene and they've been discussing it for an hour and we're all just sitting here waiting. And I said, well, <laughs> who are all these people in the chairs? And they're like, Well, they're they're people that insist that without without them, Fellini cannot make a movie. Each one of them. So <laughs> his entourage. I really? His, that's what I was told. <laughs> As I was, you know, yeah. I, was twi- I was 21. I was right. Saying, okay, gotcha. I thought, in my head, I was thinking, bullshit. bullshit. Or, or
0: it's better than thinking, like, make note, need 25 people to travel with me at all times <laughs> and sit in a square.
1: Or, as I realize, in in Italy, when you go to a film festival, there will be a lot of people around, like, they'll invite the cardinal and the, and the bishop, and they'll uh-huh. invite people from the military. They invite people that they kind of need to invite, yeah. and so they end up not necessarily needing to be there but they're there right so there might have been the same with Fellini's group
0: did you eventually get to see him direct are you
1: no I think they just they discussed the whole time the the tallest woman in the world got up to go to the bathroom which was funny because when she rose up everyone kind of cowered (laughs) because she was so tall (laughs) yeah and uh she went to the bathroom came back I don't think I remembered seeing any sort of work, filming <laughs> yeah. work did he talk were, to you guys and then on the way back from the set when we broke he talked to us as we walked yeah and i wasn't one of the lead pe- like there were two of my fellow students were on either side right. so i was listening to them talk rather than talking directly uh-huh and did did work make an impact we had lunch um with them um i mean we knew her, i knew her work is she still around I think she. Yeah, I think she is. She was a
0: a bit of a character. I remember. You know, I I, I, yeah. I remember when seven. I was young when when Seven Beauties came out, but I remember it being. Uh, she had a very uh, a powerful presence. Yeah, know.
1: in her white glasses. Yeah, and,
0: in the white glasses. Yeah.
1: So she, um, she was having. We were having lunch, and Giancarlo Giannini was there at lunch with us, and we just were kind of like part of the lunch. I don't remember speaking directly uh-huh. to her either. Um, but um, yeah, it was interesting. And Pasolini was old. Pasolini was. It was more like eight students talking to him and like, um, you know, hearing him talk. And so we each, each were talking directly to him one by one. Yeah. He wanted to ask us like what we wanted to do uh-huh. in cinema. Yeah. So each of us like had our moment. Um, How do you use yours? And my moment was kind of um, awkward because I, because I, I sort of. Um, I wanted uh, cinema to be a little more malleable like the novel Uh and like a given novel because in a novel you can start off one place and, uh, you know, um, space into like another time period and come back to where you were very easily. Whereas in cinema you can do that, but it's like difficult for the audience. Yeah. They they seem to need more linear storytelling. So I said I wanted to translate... Uh, literature into film, yeah. which is the, how I put it, and he didn't understand that. He was like, "Why would you? Why it's a whole different? Why thing. would you do that? Why would you bother <laughs> you?" And so I just like let it slide. That was like, it. That was <laughs> that was. <laughs> there was a translator, so it was like, <laughs> so I was like it's okay. okay, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> I was nervous, <laughs> but um, yeah. Two months later, he was gone. Oh wow! So we One of the last people. Well, that sounds exciting. That's an exciting thing to yeah. do
0: after college.
1: And then I went to um, London to to um, visit some friends that were there, yeah. tried to find work, which wasn't really happening. And I decided, by then I had been in Europe for three months, Yeah, was starting to feel homesick and um, decided, I was listening to Joni Mitchell's Blue and she oh, was yeah. singing it. about California uh-huh. over and over again. And I thought I should just go, just hang it up, go to California, go to LA. What were you
0: looking for work? Just on a set? Anything?
1: Yeah, anything. Yeah, you know. And it, there just wasn't a lot of work in general, right? In there in, in 1975 in London. Yeah. So you go to LA. So it just ended up here and the first on, foray into yeah, LA. Yep. Yeah, and living on Argyle Street in Franklin. Oh, back um, then, what was that like? That was that was nice yeah I mean it's like it is now it's the same actually and there was some there was an apartment that some friends of mine had that I lived with them and they were bouncers at the Roxy oh yeah in so the mid 70s in the mid 70s so they would let me in the back door and I could go see the shows what was going on then um I remember seeing uh John Prime. oh yeah I, I saw um, he's great I just saw him recently still at it yeah he, got, he just went, had a new record he at was back out. yeah um, I saw um, Patti Smith uh, um, in her heyday, in her like her first LA performance. That's great. I would see people also I didn't know who they were. I sure just would oh, end, yeah. end up in the backstage. But anyway. was it crazy on Sunset Boulevard? I mean, was it just, was pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah, and the Rainbow next next sure. door and the parking lot in between. There was a lot of um, sort of uh, dressed up people and uh-huh. craziness. I saw Martin Mall there.
0: Oh yeah. Were you um, guys friends at that? And line? I didn't
1: know him, but I said hi to him in the parking lot, uh-huh. and then I was a I was a RISD student. And how he how, um, how do you he was like great, <laughs> fine. <laughs> but I was a kid. I I felt like a you know fan. Did you get a job? I got yes. I got a job within about six months. I got this really great job. I. Um, you know, as you're looking for work in Hollywood as a young filmmaker, you know, you're given pointers you yeah. know, as you're doing it by yeah. the people that you're meeting. And somebody said, you know, you can call people up. You know, you can call John Cassavetes up. Yeah. You can get him on the phone. They have offices. You can call Alfred Hitchcock up yeah. on the phone. And I was like, okay. And I just sort of filed that away. <laughs> like, I can do this. So um, Chevy Chase had come for his first visit to L.A. since he had become a star and and Saturday Night Live which was brand new at that that moment and um, they asked him in calendar section of the LA Times what are you going to do when you're in LA and he said I'm going to maybe visit a friend Ken Shapiro who's a video freak who lives in Beverly Hills and I was like oh yeah Ken Shapiro he made the groove tube sure man and I looked in the phone book and he was there it was Ken (laughs) Shapiro and I thought I can call him up that's the one you chose and that's the one I chose and I got a job with him (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he what else, did he do Kentucky Fried Movie or just a Groove Tube he did tube? the Groove Tube right and then he did Modern Problems oh yeah later with Chevy with Chevy yeah and he had a, hard, a difficult time because he um, the Groove Tube was like his a homemade New York movie
0: right is Belzer's in it you know, Belzer yeah. Chevy Chase is in yeah, it yeah um, I remember is that the one where, where, where uh, Chevy does the bit where he's singing uh, I'm looking over and then all of a sudden you, clover. a guy playing yeah. on his head right yeah. I remember yeah
1: and there's um, Brown Twenty Five, which is the advertisement for yeah, like for Brown Twenty Five, which looks like shit coming yeah, yeah. from the <laughs> spigot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a lot of great bits. I mean, it's essentially Sketcha. is it, says, it, it is it. if you look at it, it's Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Before Saturday Night Live, yeah. and Lauren Michaels worked for Ken. Like when I got there, yeah, Lauren had just left to do Saturday Night Live Uh a couple months earlier but he was in the office that we were in working as his writer and I thought oh so he just took Saturday Night Live and pitched it to NBC or it was influenced by I mean it had the news it had musical acts it had bits it had skits you know coming from TV shows it had all of it Um, not to take away from Lauren Michaels but um, so you were comedy focused a little yeah I mean I I liked that film I liked um, yeah I liked Mel Brooks yeah. and I liked um, comedic filmmakers and working with Ken I met a lot of the the comedians of the period like Tim Thomerson sure Pat Proft was a writer yeah and he had come from the Smothers Brothers uh huh and he was Minneapolis I think so he, a lot of the Minneapolis guys were part of the writing he had these big writing groups who uh-huh. were writing Groove Tube number Two. Oh yeah and which never happened, and he had an office at paramount, uh-huh, so it was like, you're on the lot, I was like on the lot, yeah, so for me that was big really yeah. big, big stuff and what'd you what'd you
0: learn from that experience that
1: sent you I was learned that i I learned that I wasn't really able to to pitch or think up com comic. <laughs> Situations Because I tried a couple of times with the professionals, and I realized, oh, I'm di- completely yeah. dying. So you realized, like, uh, comedy's not for me? Is it, that what you- well, not that kind of comedy. <laughs> right. I guess I liked, I appreciated it. Yeah. And I was, um, I sort of, you know, was yeah. transfixed by it. And sure. I would go to open night... Open mic night, which yeah. was free at the com at the, at the comedy, store? comedy store. Like on Mondays. On Mondays yeah. because it was a free place to go. Yeah. And um, that's crazy. Loved it. But yeah. um, that I could probably could never do stand up comedy.
0: <laughs> it's uh, interesting that you liked it so much though.
1: But I liked it. So I ended up basically rolling joints at the meetings. Oh
0: yeah. That was your job.
1: That was my main job. Gosh, and buying it's... the cheese and crackers beforehand. Yeah.
0: The joint kid. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. So, but but so, how do you move towards making your first film out of the Shapiro? uh, Well, then uh, at that time
1: I was I sort of had plans. I was, um, um, I had this short story written by William Burroughs called "The Discipline of De," which um, I had read when I was in Providence in a bookstore, and I um, had by the time I was working with Shapiro or right about that same time. I had also looked up William Burroughs in the phone book in New York City. At the bunker? At, at the bunker. He was yeah. in the phone book and I called him up and I went over there basically to ask him in person for the rights and also because in the Jack Kerouac books that everyone always visited Burroughs. Yeah, so I old Bull to, Lee. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Goodbye. So, I was going to go visit Bull Lee and um, our meeting was very cordial, he was very nice. And, um, he had been to LA, so he gave me addresses of people to look up in LA Uh where I was headed. And then I asked at the end of the meeting, can, would you give me the rights? And he was like, well, you have to call my agent, Uh which I did. And then they, you know, they knew there was no money in short films, so they allowed me to do it. So eventually I made that short, which is about a seven minute short and it's on, um, it's on. YouTube oh yeah you can see it um and it's it's comedic it's funny and Ken Shapiro did the voice voiceover oh, okay, okay for it yeah and it's Burroughs' writing <clears throat> so it's kind of austere very dry he's hilarious though so, yeah so he's funny hilarious.
0: he's really funny so you had a uh you were into him since college you when yeah, was it like, in
1: college when I from Naked Lunch and all the you know, kids were reading Naked Lunch.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a mind-blower. But, you know, when you start to realize the way he... And I imagine you had a relationship with him because you used him in, what, two movies or, or one? Yeah, or yeah two. two. That, you know, he, he had bits. I mean, he was almost, you know, vaudevillian in his commitment yeah. to shtick. Exactly. Like, he had characters. He had uh, well, a way of delivering it. He was a real yeah. comic performer. Yeah, amazing. The first time I saw him was when he was on Saturday Night Live. In like, what was it, 81 or something. And I had no idea who he was because I was just a freshman in college and I watched him read those sections from Naked Lunch and I'm like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> exactly. Who is that guy?
1: Yeah. Mind blower. I think that's how I've, I, besides meeting him, I did go to see one of those readings at um, NYU. He would re- read there. Yeah. And was kind of explained, somebody explained he read it like a police report. <laughs> like his <laughs> yeah his book and I was like wow like a police report like he's a police captain and at the bench and um and he did that's how he kind yeah. of delivered it yeah he uh,
0: he's definitely had a character that was what he was public with did you were you guys friends did you remain friends I,
1: I was friends later I mean that particular project happened I I showed him a tape yeah it was like at that time there wasn't even VHS tape right. it was like a reel to reel tape and then it wasn't until later when I was um making Drugstore Cowboy, that there was this character named Old Tom... Yeah. ...who was an old junkie that our lead character, Bob Hughes, knew when he was younger... Yeah. ...and sort of looked up to him. The minister. The minister. Yeah. Well, now uh, Burroughs turned him into Tom the Priest. Oh. But at the time, he was just Old Tom, so I thought Burroughs would be the perfect guy to play this character. Yeah. And so we sent him the script, and he was like, yeah, you know, like I... I'd, I'd play it, but only if, like, he had something more going. This guy is, like, old Tom, a forgotten older person. I want to be an older person that has something happening. So, yeah. we, we said, just whatever you want to do, go ahead. You can do it. <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. so that you do it. And he's, so, he rewrote his whole part. and Made him a priest. And Matt's part, too. He really made all those... Scenes with them together. Burroughs wrote, or or his assistant. Oh, really? James wrote. James Grahals. Um James Grohl's. Yeah. And um, you they know, s- after that, and we shot it in one day too, which was. They famous. seemed very
0: like it seemed like the you know the
1: walk and talks were improvised, and those were just them talking, right, making stuff up. Yeah, because
0: like he's very good uh, walk and talk narrator of what's happening. Uh, yes. Yeah, I've seen him in documentaries do that, but I could tell that Matt, you know, in character was was. Like it was really happening. Whatever was happening was really happening.
1: (laughs) And he was going, what do I do? Um, (laughs) And Burroughs is like, I used to know an old croaker. Right (laughs) there. Yeah, yeah. But you made one film before that, right? Um, Yeah, before that I made Malinoche. Yeah. Which was a a small book by a poet named Walt Curtis who lived in Portland. Uh Uh-huh. Which was my sort of... It was my first feature film. I had made another so, sort of a feature yeah. in Hollywood when I was living in Hollywood that didn't really turn out that well. Like, um, What was it about? It was called Alice in Hollywood about a girl who moves to Hollywood ah. and sort of gets in trouble. Um, it dramatically wasn't really like playing well, so I cut it down. It was a short film by the time I was done with it. And then Malanoche was the was the film after that i didn't Um, i didn't see
0: that one. i want to it's a black and white film and it's uh it's about a it seems like a complicated relationship movie
1: it's about a um a gay poet in skid row um in old town of portland and he falls in love with a mexican migrant boy yeah who he who's sort of they 're over the winter he 's trying to survive the winter until the next growing season uh-huh. with his friends, yeah, and they 're kind of getting in trouble, right, so the poet like becomes their friend and gives them ride in his rides in his car and tries to sort of seduce them, but it doesn 't really work out uh, the The sad longing begins exactly <laughs> um, yeah. which uh yeah it 's on it's um on filmstruck, you can see that oh at, really at um in the Criterion collection. Criterion, oh good, yeah. good. So it exists.
0: So, so then, like the, that sort of set a theme for you. I mean, like you that, know the tone. Like yeah, you did because it, black-
1: it was it was like a street story. Yeah, it was a poet's story. He's sort of like a Ginsberg of uh, Walt Curtis is like sort of the Ginsberg of Portland. Oh yeah, which Ginsberg would hate when when Ginsberg would come to Portland Walt would try to insinuate himself into the scene and Ginsberg was like get rid of him him," because he was sort of copying his his deal did you know Alan yeah and I got to be friends with Alan through through Burroughs and through also um, we shared a publisher we we had photo books that we we had um, met during this like book signing
0: I was just looking at his stuff (laughs) yesterday because I was going through my books and like all those old city lights the small pocket series no, it's it's really kind of amazing to just, uh, to even at, at a glance, any Allen Ginsberg poem is so uniquely his. And so, like, there's so much m- movement yeah. in them, Do, yeah. you know? It's, it's yeah. really invigorating just to read a page. He exactly. Was a, he was a nice guy.
1: Mm. Yeah, he was great. I mean, Burroughs was the type of person that really, you know, there were certain things that he really liked to talk about. He liked yeah. to talk about um, guns, yeah. knives, poisons, snakes. control control talk about drugs or especially yeah government control conspiracy theories Uh aliens sure um whereas ginsburg (laughs) was a little more like he wanted to hear what you were thinking about he wanted to teach you about things that had been going on you know in the underground Uh you know like um i guess say like he would he would explain to you how um during a um a protest the feds would put like um troublemakers in the front of the protest oh, yeah, to yeah, cause yeah. The, the provocateurs riot, yeah provocateurs, agent provocateurs yeah he would just he would just try and download information that wasn't that you weren't going to get uh-huh. except from him oh yeah which was i always thought was really interesting
0: so yeah because you're younger than them yeah and you were sort of like uh you know listening to these old guys did you ever get to the moment where you're like all right i think i've had enough
1: no n- never okay, with yeah. either either of them. oh that's good no i wanted to always listen to them <laughs> i mean I wasn't really with them like for weeks on end I right was just, it was usually like one or two nights or something like that so uh-huh. was, i was always like all ears and they were um yeah with Burroughs, my relationship was—I learned at the very end of our relationship, before he died, that I looked like somebody he knew when he was younger. Oh, really? That there was this whole other thing going on that I wasn't really aware of.
0: No, who told you that?
1: He did. Oh, he did. And I was like, oh, that would—if I, it makes sense, you know, uh-huh. like that he he would he would uh, entertain you like longer. Because yeah. you were like actually this person.
0: Drugstore Cowboy was the first big one, right? Like where everybody's yeah. like, what the fuck is this, this guy's great? I remember um, seeing it. It was great. Yeah, after
1: Malanoche, I was able to, with the small exposure I got at film festivals, um, and the also the independent film scene was happening right right about then, mid-80s. It was really, it had, it had been going for a while, but um, it was there was a system in place. So I kind of like hit it right at the right time, and um, Avenue Pictures Finance, Drugstore Cowboy, yeah, which was a novel that a friend of mine had um, the manuscript for.
0: Who's the whose novel was
1: it? James Fogel, uh-huh. who was a Northwest um, sort of criminal, uh-huh. and he was in he was in jail at the time uh-huh. that uh, that I was shopping it around. He was in Walla Walla State Penitentiary. In Washington, and um, it was an
0: unpublished novel.
1: It was an unpublished novel. He had a few of them. Yeah, there was one called Satan Sandbox, and there was one called Drugstore Cowboy, and there was a few others. And um, how did you find that guy? I found him because of a friend of mine was taking a course with a um, writing a writer who was teaching in prisons, and he also was teaching outside of prisons as well, and he was hooking up the the prisoners, the insiders with the outsiders to basically get manuscripts sent around. Oh, wow. And my friend Dan, uh, Dan Yost had two of these manuscripts. Right. And started. Pitch- I was starting to pitch it before I even wrote a script and uh, eventually Avenue... Yeah. became interested in that one.
0: So the first film he did was in black and white and Drugstore Cowboy almost seemed like the color was like saturated or, or a little little uh, uh, high contrast or something. Was it? Did, yeah. what, what was the
1: choice on that? Well, it was weird. I mean, it was shot by Bob Yeoman who shoots a lot of Wes Anderson movies. Uh uh-huh. um, I think that what happened color-wise was our art director, David Brisbane, who was an L.A. guy, um, had chosen to use a lot of black and a lot of green Uh because we really wanted to make a black and white film but we weren't really allowed (laughs) to by our producers so he'd chosen to sort of like make it so that your mind saw it in black and white even though it was in color
0: it also serviced portland though too like there's definitely a darkness there's a
1: greenness yeah blackness Yeah, yeah that's true
0: and then, like, with My Own Private Idaho, like, I remember, I still remember, there's one, the, I remember the weirdest part of that movie. I guess it was one of the Johns who, you know, that he's got an apartment where he just sits on a couch and starts rubbing his feet mm-hmm. on the on that, like, something that mm-hmm. almost looks like this.
1: Yeah. What, <laughs> what was that?
0: Um, <clears throat> I mean, who was that guy? Was,
1: the guy was our <laughs> publicist, Mickey right. Cottrell, and um, uh. I had invited him to play this part, yeah. because because he would be the type of character he was the correct type of character, yeah, and um, he um, had a lot more. You know, he had he had written something on his own that was like twenty five pages that he expected us to film. Oh, right. But uh, when we ended up in the room where he was supposedly living, um, David Brisbane again, the uh, production designer from Western yeah. Cowboy, also did my own private Idaho, put in a new. Um, White rug, where that he said wear these slippers. Uh-huh. I think that was probably ad libbed because we had to wear slippers when we went in there, oh, yeah, because of the pristineness of the white rug. So he had in that case when we were rehearsing, his shoes slipped on the carpet because it was so new, yeah, and he had these new, like sort of dress shoes, yeah. So he was he was pretending to do. Um, some kind of ballet, right? Be- and he claimed while he was doing it that he had done ballet when he was a child, right? And it just looked so funny that we it was like we said, okay, we're shooting this. Yeah, one. so <laughs> that's why
0: he just seemed so excited. I remember. Yeah, because
1: him. yeah, he was excited.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, that movie. Like I, and so, and then it becomes sort of more. You're dealing with these guys that are, are are kind of on the margins. It sort of became a place that you explored pretty well. But those two movies certainly. Do you feel like? That that was uh, due to where you were at at the
1: time? Because your curiosity certainly sort of ranged. I think it it probably was... I mean, my first film was more of, like, tried to be a comedy, uh, Alice in Hollywood. It was also about somebody that was dispossessed, losing her way in Hollywood, living on the streets eventually. So I lived a block away from... um, Hollywood Boulevard. So I saw a lot of kids on the street. I wasn't one of the kids. I didn't really, wasn't hanging out with them. I wasn't smoking pot with them or anything. You weren't Larry Clark. No, (laughs) definitely. (laughs) Although I admired that, you know, like I just was sort of visual, visualizing, seeing their lives and like imagining what they were, or maybe, maybe reading John Reishi, Uh reading about what was going on on my own street and what was going on was pretty heavy. You know, like if you really did did yeah. get involved? It was very heavy. Yeah, it, it in, in my own private Idaho and in,
0: in Drugstore Cowboy, as heavy as it was, you, you know, it, somehow you tempered the tragedy yeah. that is Hollywood Boulevard at yeah. that time. I would. Imagine. I think.
1: Yeah, I think that both uh, Malinoche was very funny. Yeah, as a book. Yeah, Drugstore Cowboy also was funny, even though you might read it and not really get the humor. But it was yeah. like it was a little bit like Larry Clark. Here.
0: Yeah, I think it was funny.
1: Um, and then my own private idaho was more surrealistic but it funny was, there's funny, was moments. funny
0: moments as well because river was a narcoleptic right <clears throat> yeah and that 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 was its own comedic which thing.
1: came from uh george Eliot's silas marner oh really you know it was just like <laughs> this weird influence there and a little bit of samuel beckett <laughs> uh-huh and then a real a little bit of the reality and then shakespeare yeah well they like did a, shakespeare right they did yeah so it was you know a combination it's a fun things. movie
0: it was a fun movie in that sense. Do so, you know? Well, I mean, you mixed it up, right? So, like, Yeah, I it was, remember, was
1: really like a collage I mean, of different yeah. things.
0: And then there was a shot where, a, doesn't a house fall out of the sky? Yeah. Or am I making that up? No, that it happened. does. a
1: Barn. <laughs> a barn, yeah. But I think, yeah, Burroughs's cut-up ideas were a little bit in play there. Uh, so that's what you should have told <clears throat> Pasolini. I'm
0: going to do what Burroughs <laughs> did
1: with literature
0: to movies. Yeah. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, that's interesting. Was it in play? I mean, consciously, the cut-up method?
1: I I had done it, you know, I, I, on my own, I had, I I I had had, like written things Uh by cutting them up and rewriting them like he was sort of explaining. So having already done that, also I had done a lot of, because of Robert Rauschenberg when I was a student, um, high school student, we did collages Uh that were, you know, things cut out of magazines and pasted together. Yeah. So, I mean, I was used to, to, um cutting things up and putting them together Marsha McLuhan was an influence mm-hmm. um all these 60s things were an influence so
0: they're all there the beats through RISD, through the art and then, then onto yeah.
1: my own private all into, uh, my own private idaho I was, I was i was really putting everything i had into that one and movie. that did it did
0: well and that was didn't it i mean i yeah. remember
1: it being it did. great
0: they yeah new line was very happy and you know you sort of changed Keanu's tra- trajectory a bit, right? Yeah, from Bill and Ted. But again, there was a lot of funny in that, and then there was a lot of fun. To Die For is hilariously yeah. dark satire, and yeah. you work with Buck Henry, Buck Henry. And, and he's like <clears throat> that. And going back again to Shapiro's world, almost yeah, before it.
1: Yeah, from the he did that. The sort Graduate, of thing. he did yeah. The Graduate, and he was he was a prankster in the fifties. He would go on talk shows as a character you know, an uh-huh. invented character that wanted to, like, put panties on horses, you know, because right. it was obscene. Sure. Did that script exist without you? I mean, what was your no, relationship was with a, Buck? That was, a, Buck and I had the same agent. Yeah. I can't remember wh- where we met, unless it was through the agent. Probably was through the agent. And Buck was interested in working on something together. Yeah. So um, a producer had had optioned, the book called right. "To Die For," yeah, by Joyce Maynard, and um, Buck um, elected to be the screenwriter, and I elected to be the director of the project. But you work closely together then? No, because um, you know Buck sort of like locks himself into his writing room and like writes. Oh yeah, you know he doesn't he doesn't sort of spitball at least with me.
0: But like um, once it was written, that was it. He, you know he didn't. Um,
1: it was well, it was so good that I didn't you know have any. Right. Suggestions for changes did he like the movie? I think he was happy with the movie. There were some things maybe that he doesn't like, but um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that he did when he wrote it i I can rem- remember him saying that there was a lot of ways to cut this together because the, everything was like a uh a, a bit you know a one right. minute, yeah, almost like joke, yeah, so you could do it a, many different ways in the editing room.
0: It's very interesting that like the where Joaquin Phoenix was at. At that time, I guess River had passed away. Already. Yeah, he had just he had just died. But like his acting, like because in the new movie, don't worry, uh, he won't get far. Like you know, you can really see the arc within your films with that guy, of like his craft just evolving to like this. Uh, like in, he was all in on on to die for, but it was almost feral. Like he was almost, you know, kind of like an animal and uh and f- and but very raw and in the new movie he's it's such a a meticulous and controlled but you know very vulnerable performance it's kind of a, an amazing thing he did mm-hmm. but like uh, how's your relationship like have you been in touch with him over the years or
1: yeah i had um after to die for um i was pretty much in touch with him we lived we were neighbors in new york for a while uh uh-huh. lived in new york city and um Um, We had projects that we sort of imagined together um, that we never did. Um, And even then we all, all, like Casey Affleck and Joaquin and myself, found ourselves, we were all neighbors in New York. We found ourselves here in L.A. living near each other. Oh, really? So continue like just our our ongoing kind of dreaming together. And so when this particular project, Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot, became available. It was something yeah. that I had worked on in the 90s, became available again without Robin Williams. Robin Williams was one of the originators of the project. Really? Yeah. And um, For the so, lead? As the lead, yeah. And okay. he he was developing it. How long ago was that? Uh, 97. Oh, so it's been, oh, a long time. Okay. After Robin and I worked together in Goodwill Hunting, he had offered me this particular uh, story to develop for mm-hmm. him. So I had done I had developed a couple scripts with Robin. Yeah. And then it just sort of was one of those projects that never he never got to. Right. And eventually when Robin had died, it uh surfaced again at hmm. Sony. Oh really? They called me and they said, you know, what do we do with this? They book? still
0: but they still had it. They were still curious about it because of the attention that it had Robin had given it or Yeah,
1: or else they just have a library that have, certain things have Bigger price tags than others. And uh-huh. They either want to like sell them, or or get on, or with maybe do something with them.
0: Well, yeah. And with Robin on Goodwill Hunting, I mean, you know, that was a huge turning point with him, and for Matt Damon, and for Ben. I mean, and you you were brought in by. How did you get involved with that project?
1: Goodwill Hunting was um, a an executive at Miramax. Uh-huh. Uh Mark Tusk yeah. was his name. He and I were talking about Boston. We are talking about South Boston. Sure. South, And he mentioned the script. He said, oh, we just bought Ben and Matt's script. And I said, it's about South Boston. And he's like, well, it's about characters that live in South Boston. And he said, I'll send it to you. So he sent it to me, and then that's how I got a hold of it. And I originally had just called, um, I called Joaquin to find Casey's number and Casey's number to find Ben's number and got Ben and said, this is great. You guys, like, um, I knew that you had a script. I never thought to read it because it was sort of a legendary script written by two um, non-actors. Actors. Oh, yeah. I mean, non-writers. Yeah. It had been around for a few years, and I so finally I re- read it, and I was like, I didn't realize it was so amazing. It's like this amazing thing, and if you need a director, I'd be interested, which was the beginning of sort of a long process of, you know, other directors considering it. Um, me sort of standing in line uh-huh. before I could actually
0: and and it. you just what was it specifically about that story that you made you want to do it
1: I th- I think it was it was not like the other stories that I had done I think it was more of a um, uplifting story uh-huh. which I was a little scared of didn't I didn't know whether I needed the down and dirty <laughs> yeah. story to like survive as an artist or a dramatist
0: What you mean just at your fear for your personal integrity or that what you could bring to it
1: or just whether I needed that kind of energy Mm. in order to actually make the dramatics work. Uh Just because I had never done it. Everything I had done up until then was a little bit like about anti-heroes as opposed to heroes.
0: And then also like with even Cowgirls Get the Blues, you kind of like went big and weird. You you kind of did that. It's interesting because it seems like from my own private Idaho to the surrealness, like you kind of even took it further and I guess it, it got a little unhinged. They got
1: burned, <laughs> going too high, <laughs> yeah. too close to the sun. But um, so,
0: so, so, you, it was a risk for you, Goodwill Hunting.
1: That's the way I felt, like because mm-hmm. I was saying, "I'll do it," and as I was saying those words, I was thinking, "I wonder if I can." Uh-huh. You know, I wonder if I need, you know, something like I've done before. Can you but, make a sweet movie? Yeah, because yeah, it was very sweet. But there was some darkness in it. But I did like the the kind of hidden genius aspect that the janitor is solving the, pro- the problems on the uh, Harvard chalkboard right, in the right. hallway was yeah, very, yeah. you know, um, was very, uh, I guess, dead poet society. It just it had this sort of oh, yeah, yeah, warm yeah. and yeah, yeah, cuddly yeah. feeling about sure, it. Sure, sure. Which I really was a fan of that kind of film. I just never had done one. So um, I sort of, when I did do that movie, I kind of tried to put everything that I was... Doing in the other movies away way uh-huh. to, to try and do something that was more like the movie wanted to be, you know, in the script. Uh huh. Um, and 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 that and that's and you did it, and and it worked. Yeah, yeah it sure
0: Thank did. God. Now, okay, so that, obviously I, can, I can't go through every movie though I want to, but I need to ask like a, this pressing question. I mean, you know, to do to remake uh, Psycho uh, frame by frame,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, like that—that's an obsessive undertaking.
1: Yeah. And what did you? There's a whole reason behind it. If you, if you want to hear the <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> and I want to hear the reason. I want to hear um, what you learned from it. Yeah, I. I mean, I. I didn't. I think the the process of doing it was the learning. It wasn't necessarily the result. Uh huh. Um, and the and it wasn't really about learning about Hitchcock. It was right. more that when during the the uh, the 90s, the joke about the executives was that they would rather make a sequel than they would an original piece yeah because there was less risk you know so they would rather copy or continue a story that's already known in the public right and they were really searching for some way to do that now they've found out that comics is the way to do it like it already exists right in the public's mind and but at the time, they were sort of searching; they hadn't found comic and books. And it's the universe
0: too—the never-ending. It's never-ending. Con- I mean, that's,
1: they just hit what they wanted. Yeah. You know? But <laughs> yeah. back in the '90s, they hadn't found that yet. Yeah. So, but they were trying yeah. by doing like TV shows as movies, like they did the Flintstones oh, as a movie. Yeah. yeah. They did the Brady Bunch as a movie. Right. So when I went, when I did uh, Drugstore Cowboy, I was all of a sudden meeting with the you know, uh, heads of studios because mm. they knew that actors would work with me. Therefore, if they got me on their movie, they could get the actor that they wanted. So it was less about me than yeah. it was about the actors. And so in during one of the meetings, Casey Silver at Universal said, he brought in all of his uh, vice presidents. One guy was the head of the library. And he said, in the library, we have old films that you could remake. We have scripts that haven't been made yet that you could make. And it just reminded me of that Thing that they wanted to do, which is remake something, and I said, "What you guys haven't done is try to to take a hit and remake it exactly, rather than like remake it and like put a new spin on it. Yeah, just remake it for real. Yeah, because I'd never seen that done yet (laughs) as an experiment. (laughs) Right. And the whole thing seemed experimental to me anyway. Yeah. So I thought, why not? Yeah. And they laughed. You know, they were like, (laughs) they thought it was silly, (laughs) ridiculous, absurd. And they left. And so they said, well, we won't be doing that. And that continued. Every time I would meet with Casey, I would bring it back up because I would remind myself, oh, you're the guy. And I locked in on Psycho. I'm not sure why Psycho, but it just seemed like the movie that would work the best. Yeah. I would bring it up again and they would laugh again. And then later when we did do Good Will Hunting and it um, did really well at the box office, before the oscars it also got n- nominated for like nine oscars or something and the studios like to it get won a it, couple they won a couple yeah. of oscars um robin won robin and matt and ben for writing yeah right but what they like to do right you know the night before or the week before the oscars happen they like to get new deals in place with the people that are nominated because as soon as you win they've got your movie going you know they'll, yeah right they've got they can just lean over to their buddies and say, we've got that next yeah, movie. we got that guy. And I think that's why they do it. And then they forget that they yeah. have it, you know, yeah. after the night's over. So they were trying to make a deal with me. And I had a deal at Paramount and I had a deal at some other studio. And then my agent was saying, Universal really wants to do a deal with you. What Have you got anything for them? And I was like, Universal, Universal. Oh, yeah. Tell them Psycho, uh, frame-, frame by frame, <laughs> um, new cast, in color. And that's the idea. And then my agent calls back and said they think that's fantastic. <laughs> so all of a sudden they were in. <laughs> after, so money talks. After
0: the, Yeah, after the Academy Awards. Yeah.
1: <laughs> after the box office. Yeah. It was really the box office. Yeah, yeah, the okay. awards were also part of it. Yeah. Um. So then we were then I, then I had to make the decision whether I really wanted to do it. After they said yes, I right. was like, oh geez. And I was talking to Danny Elfman, who I wanted to do the score because uh-huh. he was so good at doing Bernard Herrmann style yeah. scores. And he said, "You know, they'll kill you if you make this." He knew, and I was like, "Who will kill me?" He says, "Just everyone, like the critics, the everybody yeah. that loves psycho will kill you." And I said, "Yeah, but th- Danny, this is an experiment. So yeah. This is not about who's going to get killed. Yeah. Uh, this is about doing, just doing it." Yeah. And then I thought, it doesn't matter if they kill me. And then later, when I got killed, it hurt. <laughs> but um, because you put a lot of time into it. it Well, because you actually care, yeah, whether your movie succeeds, so it didn't work. Um, But the you know the idea was whether or not you could actually remake something and it would repeat the box office. Oh, that was the you know that was the sort of weird science experiment. Sure,
0: but did you did you glean anything from? you know the process as a filmmaker
1: nothing <laughs> not really i mean it's the same process each time pretty much you've got the model you're trying to make your, sure
0: but did you like thing. i mean th- that was one it was you know, easier
1: because we we could copy the shots. Had a template yeah
0: but like you know i mean you know hitchcock was pretty good at editing Right? Yeah. So, like, when you're, you know, kind of repeating his moves, you, it didn't uh, leave any lasting impression on you? or you, you, you At no we point- We were just
1: copying the moves oh, pretty much. At no
0: point you said, like, oh, this is kind of clever what he did. You, you...
1: Um, I kind of already had looked at it that way. I could see yeah. what he had done. So, right. it wasn't in, in repeating it. It didn't yeah. bring okay. any new insight. But um, we, you know, it obviously didn't work. But I think it it, it lasted, It's it's more important now, I think- because people like yourself will ask questions about it. It's st- it's more alive now than it was before back, back when it failed. Sure, yeah. Just with I guess the art world or
0: yeah. Well, they now they the they've world. come around and realized like it was an experiment. It was, it was an experiment. <laughs> yeah, I think that the other the you know I'm going to skip around, but like uh, Elephant and Last Days, I thought were were beautiful poetic masterpieces, both of them. I loved them. I didn't see
1: Jerry. I should yeah Jerry Jerry's the first one yeah of the same sort of series of using very you know uh, long amounts of time more more as if they really are in that case the desert or as if you really are in a high school or what
0: what uh, what What <clears throat> provoked you to, to do that what What was the like uh,
1: the shift um, Jerry being the first one um, Jerry started as a project that we weren't we were going to make a film without a screenplay uh huh and we were going to we were going to kind of like keep records and like and and Im- improv and like make scenes up but we weren't going to write them down right so in the process of actually doing what we did in f- in forging the the dramatics and in the the things that that Matt and Casey did yeah. in the desert i sort of was applying a style to it according to like what they were up to Uh and the way to tell the story. Uh And it came kind of from a lot of different sources, the main one being Béla Tarr's Satan Tango. Uh Béla Tarr is a Hungarian filmmaker because what we were kind of up to in the desert was sort of going that way because I originally had thought we were going to make a film like a John Cassavetes film with a lot of talking and they weren't really talking that much. So I thought (laughs) there's still a way to, to keep going on this project. Yeah. Um and after I did that I I really wanted to, to try it again and Elephant was the next wow. next time
0: and did why what was it why did you choose you know that Columbine you know why did Col- you choose
1: um, Jerry and Elephant and Last Days are all based on real incidents yeah that are kind of have a mystery in the middle of them that can't really be solved because the the um people that can solve them are dead right okay um, so that that was the so the first the, one was really uh, the Kurt Cobain death which ended up to be the last movie made yeah the second one was Columbine and the third one was Jerry um, Columbine I had I had been working on trying to find a home for it and I had found one at HBO with Colin, yeah. Colin Callender and he's the one that said um, I can't do Columbine but I can do Elephant and I was like, what's Elephant? And he's like, it's a movie by Alan Clark. And I was realizing, oh, that's Harmony Kareem's favorite movie. It's like this, this movie that I hadn't seen. And he referred to it as Elephant because it was in the middle of a crisis in England with um, Protestant Catholic uh, violence. He made this piece that went on BBC uh-huh. um, in the middle of it and um, commented in its way on the, on the violence on the senselessness of the violence. So Ele- Elephant was sort of a code name? It was his name for it. And okay. then we didn't have a title for it because um, he didn't want to call it Columbine. So, so we just Elephant. ended up calling it Elephant, which we liked. We liked yeah. the title. I can't imagine what that set was like,
0: you know, to to be improvising and using, you know, non-acting kids. Hmm. It, you know, I mean, it must have just, there must have been days on that set where it was menacing.
1: No, no, they were very good. I mean, the people that we um, that we cast were very good at making things up. Like uh-huh. We we had pre-worked with them yeah. and found the kids that were just really good at you know just imagining s- something. And they were all quite young, you know, like fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen. Uh-huh. So they were into it. adept enough that like to just pretend.
0: And those were the first movies you'd improvised like that, the Jerry and Elephant, yeah,
1: exactly. And well, I mean, the other movies we had gone off the page even back in Drugstore Cowboy. You know, we would, sure. Like Matt Dillon would go off the page and you know make right. things up or, uh, or use other texts you know instead of the ones that we had. Yeah, there were other times that I had kind of gone off the page. Uh huh. This is the first time that we, we sort of made that the actual scene. You know, like not really having something written down.
0: And as a director, you, you're excited. Is it more exciting to do that because, and an artist, as to see as the thing reveals itself in real time. Yeah.
1: Yes. It's yeah. very exciting, yeah. Because a lot of magic happens at that moment when sure. things are being made up. I think also all three stories um, were told as if the the characters and what they talked about were really not the important thing. They right. weren't really the story. Right. They were just sort of noises that they the characters made between right. each other. Yeah. They weren't going to tell you anything, or like the things that they said weren't going to inform you. Right.
0: What was your experience with, you know, what you had shot? Was, was there a clear difference between identifiably authentic moments and and things that just kind of didn't work?
1: Um, I think, well, all three of those movies are pretty much one take movies They're oh, one yeah. angle. So whatever's going on is not, it's not edited. It's just sort of one big long shot. I can't remember. I think that we arranged it so there wouldn't really ever be an incorrect thing unless somebody just said stop, stop, stop. I oh, can't right. go, and, go yeah. on, you know. Did that happen? But that didn't happen. Uh-huh. Um, they weren't unnerving. They weren't hard. They were fun. Yeah. The um,
0: he, As the, dark as they were. Last days and yeah. you know, Elephant and Jerry. The kids,
1: the kids could do like whatever they wanted. Uh-huh. We wouldn't tell them what not to do or what to do. They didn't they knew that we weren't going to like be disappointed they felt free to right. do whatever uh, they want yeah and so long as sort of the actions if, as are, long as they get there or getting where you're supposed to be getting mm-hmm. then which in the case of elephant they weren't really supposed to be getting anywhere they're just wandering down the halls pretty much you're going to class or, That's right know, they're not trying to get anywhere um the shooters are trying to shoot people right but um yeah um, last days, I mean, he's, the character is, is trying to avoid people. Yeah. So he's doing that.
0: I thought that was really good. Yeah. He's a, he's an interesting actor, that guy. I mean, I haven't seen him in a Mark, lot. I mean, yeah. in bully, I, I remember he was great in bully. And then you go from those three to milk, which is like a biopic.
1: Yes. You straight had biopic. Tight,
0: man. You got it. <laughs> like, was that, uh, what brought you to that project?
1: That was, um, an Oliver Stone project. Um, Originally, that he decided after JFK, yeah, that he was not going to do another assassination movie, and that he had developed it actually, but with David Franzoni, there was like twelve screenplays, and there were uh, a couple of producers who who had op- had bought the book, "The Mayor of Castro Street," which is where the original um, novel about the about his life, about Harvey's life, yeah, and. um that was my origin. I worked on a couple of screenplays on that one, and it never came about. And eventually, a, a different party, yeah. Lance Black, came up with a, um, a screenplay about the same guy and the same, you know, uh, rising to um, to politics in his life in San Francisco. So I, I said, "Well, I know this very well, so let's go make it." You know? Yeah, so and
0: then, and you got an amazing cast.
1: Yeah, we called Sean. <laughs>
0: How was it for you working I, with him?
1: Um, I had, during um, another incarnation of the script, I'd actually contacted him before and um, asked him to um, to do this biopic about Harvey Milk. And he was interested, and then we sort of, like, the project didn't happen, and I lost contact, and, like, years went by. Like, I think 10 years went by. Uh-huh. And then, again, we were back into it, and Sean had gotten older. He was more the year age of the guy of Harvey. Yeah. So um called him back up. And I said so uh what do you think about um playing Harvey Milk? He lived in San Francisco at the time. Um Sean did. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like I'm interested. I had never worked with him before. I'd worked with a uh, lot of different people. Um I think for him we have a lot of things that we like that are similar, you know, like we have um Similar tastes in things, like styles. So I think that um, without too much um, discussion, we th- seem to be in the same track of like what we were up to. Uh-huh. I didn't really encumber him with a lot of um, details of things I needed, you know, like the way he held the pen in his hand right. or anything like that, because he'll do it. Like, and he and he likes to do it. And I found this with a lot of actors, you know, if you let them just do their thing. That's kind of their happy place, yeah. Like, as opposed to being micromanaging, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, if they can do that, it gets them excited because then they're contributing, they're right. inventing things for the, the camera. So in his case, um, he uh, was happy. He said, "I was one of the only directors that he didn't feel like punching in the face at the end of the movie," <laughs> which was a compliment. <laughs> yeah. I said, oh. "Who was the other one?" He was like, "Clint Eastwood," <laughs> because <laughs> he punched nice. back.
0: Um. (laughs) and Brolin was great and it was did did you feel any sort of responsibility in that movie in terms of
1: I mean in every movie you you feel a huge responsibility but to the uh, gay community yeah I mean it's huge I mean you're very responsible to sort of like try and get things as as right as you can I mean it's elusive because I think the the you know looking back on that movie the one thing that we may have like Left out a little bit was the um, the joy, you know, the the gaiety of like mm-hmm. the life on Castro. Like we were, we were sort of so into the politics and the the moment to moment things that I think we kind of didn't capture like the hilarity.
0: Now let's just arrive at this. Uh, uh, you know, obviously there's more films to talk about, but I, I watched um, uh, the new one the one that you're out talking about don't worry he won't get far on foot and i, I didn't know anything about that guy and i didn't know that the book existed i didn't know anything about the movie and, you know and i and as a sober guy which i am uh, I, on top of a lot of other things i thought it was the most uh effective uh movie about sobriety that i had seen in a long time yeah, maybe ever because I've never seen anybody address the amends process, and I think that that amends that one that one number nine, yeah, uh, sought to make an amends of people. Uh, you know, if you could in person, mm-hmm. you know, face to face, and that that one scene with Jack and uh, Black and, and yeah. Joaquin is, yeah, it and you and you built the weight of it properly. You you know that. Mm-hmm. He was working his
1: way towards that yeah
0: right and and just like how do you like how do you address the guy who you didn't even know, yeah, who was responsible for taking your your legs and arms away basically you know but but like I'm getting ahead of myself i just i thought the movie was was amazing and and he was amazing and and uh you know what were what attracted you to this one,
1: sort of like the harvey milk story it was something that Although I knew John Callahan as a Portlander and he was Oh, he um, did. Yeah, he was a very um visible uh person on the street in Portland because of his wheelchair and because of his bright red hair and the speed with which he was going down the street usually. And by the time I got to know him it was because of his cartoons like they were being printed in the weekly newspaper and um he had written a book I was aware that there was a book I hadn't looked at it or read it but i kind of knew his story i knew one of the cartoons sort of explained his drinking and his his um you know um attempts at sobriety were in some of the cartoons so you uh-huh. kind of got the picture in his cartoon and he was world.
0: a bad like he was like a low bottom alcoholic like a real you know hardcore alcoholic mm-hmm. that that just for people listening that you you know that he wasn't a cartoonist when when he Lost his his nope. his ability to walk and in most of his ability to use his arms in a, in, a, in a ridiculously dumb accident with another he drunk was, guy. He was he was an artist, yeah,
1: of sorts in in high school. Uh huh. And he was twenty one when he had his accident.
0: Really, twenty one. Twenty
1: one. So he was quite young, and he was in Long Beach, working, and the party that he went to was in Long Beach. Yeah. And um, the guy that he met, Dexter. Yeah. Was just the party guy in Long Beach. Yeah. And yeah, um, is that
0: guy a real guy?
1: It's based on a real guy. I don't know his real name, but um, uh-huh. um, our movie studio is very worried about like real names. I don't know. I don't think that he ever used any real names in his book. John Callahan. John Callahan. But um, we changed them. We changed a lot of them anyway. Um, I
0: thought it was a fascinating decision on your part, uh, which I assume it was on your part of how you handled the actual accident. It's almost fleeting. You know what you mm-hmm. see of it. Mm-hmm. You know you see the car, you see them driving, but yeah. what actually changes the, the the trajectory of this guy's life is is like what five seconds, right? Yeah,
1: yeah it's very short. Yeah, he w- he was well known in in Portland, yeah. and I had met him because of just being on you know around town, like mm-hmm. just socially, and it was Robin Williams who had bought the book he and his wife who had a production company right. had bought the the john callahan book uh-huh. don't worry he won't get far on foot and um they uh, invited me to to be the director and to develop a script with the writer mm-hmm. so i found uh, some writer friends of mine and we made a script uh sent it to sony and there just sort of wasn't any continuation And then a few years later, we wrote a second script in 2002, Mm -hmm. again, because they got interested in in it again. Robin did, I guess. Yeah. And um, again, we wrote a script, sent it in, and there was just sort of like, you know, silence. Yeah. Time went by. So, which could have meant they just didn't like the script or weren't sure. God forbid they tell you, right? And then you don't usually hear, but also it could be, you know, the studio because the You know, the idea is you're taking Robin and you're putting him into this like very real story, and he's a quadriplegic, he's a cartoonist, he's like going through a twelve step step program, and so I think by then there had been a number of of recovery movies made that didn't make money, right? So so who knows what combination of that of those things? So time just went by, and um, and it was just one of those projects that that I guess was never going to get made. And then um, John died in to, in 2010, and then Robin died Yeah. after that. Um, and uh, shortly after Robin had died, I think 2014, somebody called from Sony saying that they had this property. That you wrote. And that we had written scripts to, and I thought, do I want to like revisit it? And so I started to work on a new script to see whether I kind of like could get what I wanted out of it. Which was you, what? Well, the other two scripts were a little bit, they were written for Robin. Right. To do like Robin things, you know. Right. And, and we kind of strayed a little bit from the book, which was a little darker, a little more austere. Yeah. And so I worked on something that, um, that I th- thought could work, which was closer to what I thought was his book. And I also called Joaquin because I thought, you know, I should really have somebody in mind if I actually get involved, so we did um on spec wrote wrote a screenplay, joaquin and I went into Sony, and then they said no <laughs> after <laughs> yeah. all this so but they did allow us to take it somewhere else, and then who did it amazon oh, amazon so. shot shot this i
0: I tell um, you, man, I can't imagine anyone else doing it, but joaquin in the in the form that it's in you, you know there there is a certain like his commitment to that character, whatever, whatever he did, like, because there, there's a weird thing that, that really bad alcoholics have in their demeanor, you you know, which is like the, the bottom line is they need to drink, you know, Hmm. now, why am I not drinking? And, you know, he was able to sort of get that. It's, it's a, it's a corruption of the soul in Mm -hmm. a way, you know, and you can see it in their, in their disposition. Hmm. And he was able to do that somehow, you know, like that, that scene where, you know, he's, you know, after the accident, and he still can't stop drinking and he's in his wheelchair and he's like knocking that half gallon of wine back in the park. Yeah. And those dudes come up to basically take, and he just gives them money to get their own. Like, you, you know, yeah, get, like, get away. <laughs> get away. Go get your own bottle. I need yeah. all of this. Yeah. And that, I mean, it was just a, a stunning performance. And I thought you just captured it all so well. And the story's like incredibly moving.
1: How are you going to. You know, but it, it's really a recovery movie. Mm-hmm. Did you see it that way? Yeah, I mean, that was the thing that we didn't quite, we didn't go for in the earlier scripts because even though he did go into um, AA, we didn't see him going through um, sort of the whole process. Yeah. The, the first script was sort of written at, in 12 chapters, mm-hmm. but they weren't specifically about steps. Right. And I thought, what, you know that I wanted to actually address the act, as much as we could the steps because we skip over yeah a number, number of steps right but it feels like you're kind of marching through the steps and um, that was the kind of thing that I was trying to bring about in this new draft
0: yeah I I've never seen it before but well, you know AA is weird about that and historically about to, you know uh, being represented yeah. but but I I've grown as somebody who's in recovery to just like look I it helps people. Period. You know, I, I'm sorry if you're upset about the tradition, but, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, we're not representing AA here. We're representing a guy's story, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's inter- intertwined. So, I mean, there were things about AA that I think um, were important for the characters to be paying attention to and to, like, be wrapped up by. And Donnie... You know, his character had to be sort of the authority. Jonah? Jonah's character. Was, that was an interesting
0: <laughs> character, because I don't know how much of that was in the book or what, because it was unorthodox. I mean, the, the sort of like, the 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 guy who sponsors a lot of people is definitely not unorthodox, but the sort of meetings that weren't essentially AA meetings... Mm-hmm. That were at his house. Yeah.
1: Uh, Which were, these were things that John wrote about. He like... Yeah, they, they had those meetings. He, but, yeah. he may have like made that up. He, there were certain things that it seemed like John did play with the reality uh-huh. of things. Um, well, they
0: definitely have private meetings with, with people and it would make sense. It's not that unusual, but it wasn't really an AA meeting. It was right. just sort of a group therapy trip, right? Mm-hmm. A little bit.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, definitely Joaquin, uh, one of the main things that he does is he gets right into the middle of like his emotions concerning each scene. Oh, yeah? Which is great for for... Us, for the director and for the... How do you for mean? Rest. Well, he's sort of in the middle. Like, when he's in the scene, he's just really in there. Yeah. So, you can't really go wrong. <laughs> or right. he can't. And he makes it that way, fortunately. And he's trying to do that, I'm assuming. Um, that's just his process? That's his process. It's just yeah. Just to get to, to that point. And what, what
0: was different from the Joaquin... that He you would never did? say that. Right. Um, what, uh, what, was, what, what was
1: different, did you notice, from working with him when he was a kid and working with him the now. same it was really the same really yeah i mean he was way more experienced doing don't worry than to die for i mean sure. to die for he hadn't acted in a while he had been in things when he was younger like 14 yeah he was in parenthood right and he had been in space camp which he remembers fondly but um um he he really immersed himself i think it's just his natural way to do it um and um, he just becomes the character. I think he he. It's not like I. Um, maybe the method, or, right? But it's his own version of it, right? Know, where he's he's really like moving like the character, and yeah. And when you you know when you say cut, he he's not still in character, but somehow he gets close enough to it that he can pop in and out. Wow. Yeah. It was
0: it was great, and I, I hope it does well for you. Yeah. So yeah, and it was great talking to you.
1: Oh, thanks. Thanks, thanks Mark. You, man.
0: That was a lot of stuff I didn't know about him. Why would I? Yeah, man, that was the first time I talked to him. How could I have known? So, all right. So, do we play guitar? Do we? I'll do it. I'll do a little. I I like it. I like the way this sounds. I plugged the thing into a new hole and I haven't changed the strings yet and it keeps getting filthier.